Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello and welcome to Read Smart, the official podcast of the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction. As always, this podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. My name is Toby Mundy and I'm the director of the Bailey Gifford Prize and I'm delighted to welcome you to one of our shortlist podcasts, a conversation with one of our shortlisted authors for the 2022 award. Our guest today is Catherine Rundell, a fellow of All Souls College, Oxford, an author of children's books, a Renaissance scholar, and the author of Super Infinite, The Transformations of John Donne, which is shortlisted for this year's award. Uh, congratulations, Catherine, and welcome. Thank you so much. Um, millions of things to talk about. Um, but I suppose the obvious question, which I'm sure you've been asked many times before, is who was John Donne and why should we read about him now? So John Donne, there are many, many reasons why you should read about him. But I think the most immediately compelling is that he was, for my money, the finest writer of desire and sex and love and passion in the English language ever. He was a burning original, someone who lived at a time when poetry and the general conception of romance looked a very specific, quite monovocal way. And he burned his way through it in the way that originals do. And I think in so doing offered us, his work is difficult, famously so. He is supposed to be one of the hardest poets in the English language. But if you read him, he offers a bulwark against anti-intellectualism, against, against the cheap images of desire we are offered often in the media today. He offered us a kind of freedom, a kind of galvanic vision of language as a set of possibilities that can be bent to express the unique and unwieldy quality of each human mind. He was a, a staggering intellect who we are so lucky that he wrote down that, that unwieldy brain of his. He set it down in, in many, many hundreds of, of ways in poetry and sermons and prose and we now have the chance to cherish it. Well, that's a, a wonderful uh, reason um, to write this book. So would it be fair to say then that, um, among other things, this is a work of advocacy born of great passion? <laughs> exactly that. So I, uh, I hold a fellowship in English literature at All Souls College in Oxford, and my PhD was on John Donne. And I have spent about 10 years now, first of all, studying and then writing this book and although I frequently got bored of myself and exasperated and disgusted by my work I never once got sick of John Donne because he has in him the capacity to infinitely renew himself that density of his work means you cannot get bored of him <laughs> oh so what took you so long to write the book <laughs> well I rewrote it three times um I, the first version was I think too academic, too um, anxious to prove that I had done my work in the archives, too goody two-shoes really. <laughs> um, and then the second one I think was edging closer to what I wanted but 
it says in the book that it is both a biography because his life was incredible, Absolutely. really I, remarkable. I want to come back to that in a minute, yeah. Um, but it is also a, a kind of act of evangelism. It is saying that if you read his work now, he will offer you something that will shift your inner dial, however little, and show you new possibilities in the ways we figure living, I think. Wow. Well, let's go back to the beginning. So tell us a little bit before we get into the... I want to talk a bit about his life and I want to talk a bit about his afterlife, if you like, and his and what happened to his work and his reputation after his death and a bit about how you went through these three drafts of the manuscript to arrive at the one that you have. But before we do that, can you just tell us a bit about the status and the role of poetry at this time in, in England in the late 16th century? Absolutely. So... John Dime was born in 1572, and so by the time he was writing at the turn of the century in his early 20s, poetry was probably more important then than at any other time in the history of Britain. It could be so many things. It would be very unusual to be a man of his level of education, his class, and not to be interested in and occasionally attempting poetry, because it could be... It could be a seduction, of course, but it could be a thank you note. It could be propaganda. It could be a reproof. It could be an invoice. It could be a begging for money. It could be a begging for love. It could be politics. It could be religion. People were writing it daily. And he lived at a time when people would exchange verse. It was um, at a time when very few people of his class would print, but you would write on on small manuscripts, fold them into eight, tuck them in your sleeve, pass them to someone via the versions of post that we had then, and they would be passed on and on. And so in that way, John Donne, while he was still in his 20s, became one of the most read poets of his generation and one of the most beloved. He became famous, first of all, in a small circle, and then as that rippled outwards more widely for his kind of rampant and difficult and in some ways quite ornery and aggressive wit. <laughs> so he's born in 1572 in London, in, in view of St Paul's Cathedral, I think you said, didn't you? Exactly. So he's a, 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 a very strong contemporary of Shakespeare, is that right? Exactly. So people often ask me, did they meet? Um, it's very likely that Dunn will have seen Shakespeare, perhaps on the stage. Uh, he was certainly, we know, fond of plays. We know that he went to see Richard III. He probably went to see Twelfth Night. Um, they, they will have been aware of each other because they had friends in common, Ben Johnson being the most mm. obvious one. But they were of slightly different classes. And because John Dunn had such a complicated and liminal social position, he might have been more careful to distance himself from the son of a glover, no matter how prosperous, because he was uh, descended on his mother's side from Thomas More, you know, mm. Saint Thomas More. And he was, of course, a Catholic um, and a Catholic apostate who became a Protestant. And it made his social position, certainly in his early years, a fraught and uh, quite wary one. So the book has this wonderful title and subtitle, The Transformations of John Donne. So he's born in 1572, but by, by the time he's 21, I think he's studying law and really living it up a bit, isn't he? He's master of the rebels. So is he, he's, is he Jack Dunn at that point? And, and what sort of life is he living? 
Exactly. So he himself created this idea of uh, a kind of bifurcated Dunn. There was Jack Dunn, the rake about town, who was writing some of the most licentious verse in the English language. And then later there was Dr. Dunn, the serious bearded Dean of St. Paul's. And the book contends that that division, uh, while it was a useful one to him, certainly in disavowing some of his earlier rakery, um, is far too simple that he was so many things. He was a student, a scholar, a lawyer, a pirate on the high seas for Queen mm. Elizabeth, um, a lover, a jailbird, uh, this, you know, the, the, the target of opprobrium and gossip. And then, of course, a priest, a convert, and one of the most powerful men in the English church. Gosh, absolutely. And the young, the, so the young Jack Dunn was in charge of pageantry and putting on parties for his fellow scholars and he also loved dancing the galliard what is a galliard <laughs> galliard is a uh, complicated quite footwork heavy dance huh. um, that involves a lot of small spins and then occasional great knee- leaps so a lot of a lot of work around the knee um, queen elizabeth famously was said to dance a galliard or two before breakfast it was her preferred form of exercise and so john dunn in about 1600-1601 would have been living a a kind of quite glamorous life. They weren't rich, but he would have had a small allowance from his dead father. And he would have been a kind of archetypal man about town. I think it's quite significant that he was exceptionally beautiful. Mm, He was a very, very good looking man. That amazing portrait, the Lothian portrait, uh, which people will be familiar with for the big hat and the the elegant moustache. And he was recognised as such by his contemporaries. His biographer, Walton, writes about his beauty. So he was, you know, handsome and dark and, and and a boy about town. And writing poetry. And writing poetry. And so I guess this is where we start to see what makes Dunn so important. Mm. So he refused to write the kind of poetry that was in fashion. Um, Sir Philip Sidney, for instance, mm. would have been one of the archetypes that people aspired to. And Philip Sidney compares um, his his lady love's shoulders are like unto two white doves and she out beauties beauty. Mm. And then in another place, her cheeks are like two white doves. And John Dunn refused to play the my lady is a perfect dove game. John <laughs> Dunn erupted from that tradition and insisted instead on strangeness. His poetry says, why would your love be like a dove or like a rose? I mean, it might be, but it's incredibly unlikely. He instead reached for images that would show our hunger and our spite and our transcendence and our passion and our just vertiginous oddness in love. So he uses you know, um, remora, which are a kind of sucking fish, which in mythic stories, you know, devour ships and fleas and compasses and diamonds cutting a name in a window and goats and elephants. He wanted to salute the idea that the human creature is infinite and infinitely strange. Presumably, this innovative poetic approach did several different things for him at the same time. It established his reputation as a brilliant mind and also was probably, I guess, quite a successful strategy for seducing girls. (laughs) So this is the other great question of John Donne. 
how many of those poems were for actual real women. Mm. And it's likely that a lot of the earlier ones, when he was at the Inns of Court, were not written to be handed to women in a bit of seduction. It was actually quite difficult to seduce women of his own age because the penalties for having a child out of wedlock were so great that mm. women's virginity was carefully protected. So he is probably a great licentious bowler down of ladies only in the imagination. And some poems like The Flea, um, in which he famously imagines a flea biting first him and then a woman and sort of makes it into this, this quite strange sexual imagery. It's very unlikely he was giving that to a girl. He was almost certainly writing it for a small group of hyper-educated young men as part of a kind of exchange and mart of poetry. But then there was poetry that he wrote, we know, for the woman with whom he fell in love. And we know that because although none of it is ascribed to her, her name was Anne Moore. Mm. And he puns on that name over and over. He has... Uh, one poem called Love's Growth, which goes, I scarce believe my love to be so pure as I had thought it was, because it doth endure vicissitude and season as the grass. Methinks I lied all winter when I swore my love was infinite, if spring maked it more. And hmm. that more means that for all the millions and millions of people who have read that poem since, it was different for her. And want to come back to Anne in a moment. Um, but in this, wherever he was, death was never very far away, was it? And plague, indeed. The, the cause mm. of much death was never very far away. Uh, at, at law school, he's with his brother Henry, isn't he? And that exactly. Had a, tell us about what Henry's fate and, and Dunn's response to that. So Dunn would have been about 20 and... Uh, his little brother, Henry, who had gone with him to Oxford together, he was one year younger than Dunn and would have been Dunn's responsibility. When Henry came to the Inns of Court, he decided to harbour a priest in his rooms, a Catholic priest. And he was very young. He was 19 years old. Otherwise, he would have known that that was impossible because how would he have got food and disposed of waste? He was caught and the priest was taken away and hung, drawn and quartered. But it was illegal to harbour a priest and he was thrown into jail. And the jail was plague-ridden. Mm. And it was said at the time, although probably untruly, that he was sent explicitly to that jail as punishment so that he would die. Mm. Dunn, as far as we know, didn't visit Henry. Perhaps he was afraid of the plague or perhaps he didn't know that he didn't have time to waste. But within days, Henry died in agonising pain and alone. And Dunn's poetry does start to change a little bit after Henry's death. It's difficult to date the poetry exactly, but there, there begins to be a kind of dread there has always been dread in his poetry. He has always coupled a kind of wild sense of living with horror. And I think that death, it wouldn't have even have been the first death. He 
um, tradition holds, although it's difficult to pin this down, that he may have been taken to see his great uncle, a Jesuit, hung, drawn and courted in the square. He was taken to the Tower of London, sort of smuggled in a way to make a visit to his uncle there look innocent and familial when in fact it was a, a political meeting. Mm. So he was familiar with the idea that your life can be cut off abruptly and brutally. And the, the presence of plague meant that life could be extinguished incredibly quickly. I'm, it, it was shocking to be reminded just how quickly people's lives could be terminated by a flea bite. Exactly. People would say that you could dine with your neighbours and sup with death. You could die within the course of a day. And when a member of the family had plague, the whole family would have been boarded up inside the house and a piece of paper pinned to the door saying, God have mercy on us. It was a, a strange and intense and painful and difficult time to be alive. And I think that's the other thing that we can take from Dunn. There is the great imagery of love. But then the other thing is this, he saw so much death and later he would lose children. Mm. Later he would lose Anne. He was suicidal for much, perhaps most of his life. He wrote the first full-length treatise on suicide by Thanatos. He knew what it was to feel terror and horror and sorrow on a daily basis. And yet he insists throughout his life to the point of his death that mankind is corrupt and brutal, but is also a miracle. He writes that to compare man, a single man, to the world is wildly disproportionate. He says, compared unto one man, the world itself is a dwarf. He saw us as these infinite, labyrinthine, miraculous beings. He insisted on awe and astonishment. You know, it is an astonishment to be alive and it behoves you, therefore, to to invest in the iron-willed discipline it will take to be astonished. <laughs> and and I love him for that. <laughs> Clearly, and you convey, the, you convey your passion brilliantly. I mean, but this, tell us a bit more about, let's drill a bit more into this awe, if you like. I mean, it feels like it, I mean, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels like if there, there's sort of two parts to it. One is the sort of awe that I'm alive when death is everywhere. But the other one, the other aspect of it feels a bit like the sort of miracle of human sentience, if you like. Mm. Um, is that fair? Is that uh, is that right? Yes, I think that's beautifully put. So exactly this. So for him, I think the fact of human intellect is an astonishment. He talks about his immoderate hydroptic thirst for mm. learning. What a phrase. He, he, he is constantly questing for knowledge. He learnt multiple languages. He invents words in a bid to reach beyond what language has already offered him. Um, he Part of that awe is, is to do with love, the way he thinks of the idea of, of love and, and specifically sex as a kind of sacrament, as a kind of answer to a riddle. Um, you know, he says, this ecstasy doth unperplex. But then, you know, as you say, just, just the fact of thinking hard and fast was, I think, for Dunn, a kind of vibrant and sensual pleasure. 
I think for him, he writes, I am a little sprite made cunningly. He he revels in the capacity of the mind, even although he also finds it brutal and that it draws him, he says, you know, frequently, you know, he says something about like eyeing his sword with with a desire to kill himself. He has he has both a sense of horror and of delight in the same moment. And I think being able to hold them together in the same palm is is what makes him remarkable. And where does God fit into this this sort of worldview? It's as you say, he grew up as a into a Catholic family, but then ultimately his his when he became dean of St Paul's, it's not clear that the priesthood was exactly his calling. I mean, how how does God fit into his worldview? Do you think? So I think that is the central question of John Donne's studies. If you asked any John Donne scholar what is the most controversial question, it would be this: When he converted, was it a true conversion? Did he, as a brilliant Catholic boy, put his finger to the wind and realise that it was unlikely that he would be able to prosper and forward himself in a world in which to be Catholic was to be persecuted? Or was it a genuine conversion? He blamed the Jesuits for Henry's death. Was it perhaps in some ways fueled by that, by falling in love with Protestants, flirtations with Protestants, friendships with Protestants? So there's that question. Was he ever really a Protestant anyway? And then the second question is, when he became a priest, was it because more or less every other avenue had been closed to him? He did try many other jobs, diplomat, he tried to be, he was secretary to Thomas Edgerton, the keeper of the Great Seal, so sort of the most uh, powerful lawyer in England. Um, was it faute de mieux or a kind of expediency or was it a genuine pull towards God? And people will tell you different answers. In in the 1980s, there was a very strong sense, um, I think most brilliantly expressed by John Kerry's incredible piece of mm. Don criticism, um, John Donne, Life, Mind and Art, that it was broadly speaking an apostasy for profit. And then increasingly, we have new information people in the 80s didn't have um, access to, which is that redating some of the letters suggests that in the two years before Dunn took orders and became a priest, he was trying very hard to be permitted by his patrons to take orders, to be given the help to do so, and he was being thwarted. So, So there was some pull there, there was some draw. I personally... And again, it is always going to be a pay your money and take your choice. Mm. I lean towards the idea that when he became a priest, it was done with a large portion of genuine passion behind it, in part because of the beauty and magnitude of his sermons. Mm. Um, people said, you know, he would weep in the pulpit and people would weep with him. You could say that's just theatricality. But once you've read 40 or 50 of his sermons, you start to feel that you are in the presence of someone who is wrestling with the genuine force of everything they have with the question and the hope of God. And do you think there's something anachronistic in some of the way that the question is posed by contemporary writers, as if to say that atheism was a, or, or, or the, a secular worldview was, I mean, even conceivable at that point, really? Exactly. So that's the other thing. How far was it possible to conceive of atheism in the way that we can 400 years from now? When people talk about Kit Marlowe potentially being an atheist, they mean something quite different from what we mean by atheist. And I think it there is a 
an anachronistic desire to map onto Dunn's life, the sense that atheism was an equally possible alternative. His life was deeply saturated in the imagery and faith and hope for God. Mm. And that is not to say he doesn't have doubt. One of the reasons that I love him is in a time in which it was quite unusual to express personal vulnerability from the pulpit. Mm. He writes about how you know he falls on his knees and summons God and his angels. And then he says, and when the angels are there, I neglect them for you know the sound of a fly and a straw under my knee and a, a something and nothing, a chimera. He writes about the ways in which his mind is not under his own control in prayer, how focus and dedication and devoutness do not come easily to him. And that's why I think if you happen to be someone who was looking for images of religious faith that were not bold, absolutely unswervingly certain ones, if you were looking for someone who got there in scratches and errors and doubts, he might be a good place to go. Um, Presumably. I mean, the iconoclastic hurricane released by Henry VIII made hypocrites of every English family at some point. I mean, that's the other thing. He, you know, lived at a moment when people had very vivid living memories of um, of shifts between religion back and forth, Bloody Mary, Elizabeth, Henry, Edward. Religion was in turmoil. And therefore, I think to, to imagine his uh, shift as in some way uh, indicative of of bad faith, I think uh, misunderstands the fact that not only did many people switch religions in their lifetimes, denominations, the whole country did. Mm. Mm. It must have been extraordinary if there was, particularly if there was no such thing as a sort of secular view of the world. So the stakes of getting this, it was your eternal soul that was at stake in this, this, this turbulence, wasn't it? It must have been extraordinarily stressful. I, it must have been so giddying. I mean, it's it's why I, you know, it's why I love Wolf Hall because it expresses so brilliantly the kind of insult that it felt to so many people who had been told they were living well and suddenly were being told that what had previously been the ideal was now damnation. I uh, mean, it's a fantastic startling. meditation on legitimacy that novel amongst yes, many many isn't other it? things. I totally agree. So, look, uh, there's so many questions I want to ask you. I want to sort of cover as much ground as I can. Tell us a little bit about Anne, and then I want to talk, if if I may, a bit more about the poetry in his afterlife. So he met, Anne was young by our standards, but not indecently young by the standards of the time when he met her first. Exactly that. So she was 14 or thereabouts. We're slightly unclear about her birthday. He would have been in his very early 20s. And over the next three years, he, uh, he... in some way, we don't know how, he wooed her. He was beautiful. He was already renowned as a great wit, someone who you know, wore his intellect and swiftness like a knife in his shoe. And we know that when she was 17, she crept out unseen from her home and married him in the cold, in secret. We know that when she did so, she took an enormous risk, greater than him, that to disobey your father, especially if you were of the class she was. Anne Moore was the niece of his employer, Thomas Edgerton. Her father was Sir George Moore. She came from prosperity. Her father would have wanted for her the kind of match that came with, you know, ideally a castle and beautiful wall hangings. And in 
rejecting that. She risked being thrown out of the family. She risked being beaten about the head. She even, I mean, in very, very rare cases, mm. risked um, death. She took that risk for him. Some people believe it was because she was pregnant. We have no evidence for that, and there was no child nine months later, but it is certainly possible. Um, and then they just went home to their separate homes and waited and waited. And then no good moment came. So in the end, he told Anne Moore's father. And John Dunn knew that John that um, that Moore would be angry, but he didn't know how angry. He was immediately thrown into prison, into the Fleet Prison, which was a debtor's prison. And when there was a carpet of lice that crunched under your feet. Oh. And... Then you know it was a, a complicated legal case to to manage to get himself out again, and when finally the marriage was ratified and his bride was returned to him, he had nowhere to go. Mm. He'd been fired. He was suddenly you know an outcast. She will have gone from being an adored girl on the social scene to being whispered about all over London. You know they took this great, beautiful, brilliant leap, and. The anticlimax afterwards was quite great. And then her life, very few people have written about her. We know very little about her. I was going to say, about... do we know that, was she his match? Was the, Do we know that if she, she shared his sort of sparkling wit? So we don't know. Um, there's even debates about whether or not she could read. I think she absolutely could because um, there's a letter that refers to the learned hand of your mistress, which I don't think is ironic. Mm. Um, and also that he writes in her epitaph that she was his best reader and his best text. Mm. Um, it's a kind of Latin pun. Um, so we don't know very much about her. We do know that all that poetry for her, it's unlikely that he would have written it for her if she didn't understand it. Mm. But the thing that happened to her was the thing that happened to so many women of her age. She was pregnant or recovering from pregnancy her entire adult life, from mm. 17 until she died at 32 in childbirth. She had 12 babies, two of whom were stillborn, six of whom died. She, she would have taken this great and beautiful leap. And for a long time, they may well have been wildly in love because the love poetry was written in good measure, The Sun Rising, one of the finest love poetries of all time, was written after the marriage. But the poetry did stop in the end. And mm. I think that that marriage is both a moment of great romance, but perhaps also proof that love is not always enough. Mm. And do you think there's a sense in which Dunn himself was in love with being in love? I think that's really astute. Often in the poetry, you seem to see less a woman than a man watching himself watching a woman. Mm -hmm. there, is, there is in some of the poetry a sense of delight in the fact of being in love. Although I think there is also poetry which does seem truly dedicated to the idea of her, you know, all language I should pass, should I tell what a miracle she was. I, I think there is love there. Gosh, there are so, so many questions I'd love to ask you, but we are more or less out of time. How, um, I suppose my last question would be, there was always an element of moral instruction in a great deal of poetry of that time. What, what moral instruction do you think Dunn's poetry gives contemporary readers? So I think he was, his sermons certainly are full of moral instruction. Mm. Um, 
both of the expected kind uh, about sin and horror, sometimes of the unexpected kind. He is one of the few people who stands in the pulpit and says that those who neglect to laugh offer to God a contempt. <laughs> um, so he, you know, he, he in some ways has a very straightforward moral offering. I'm not sure that the poetry has it. I think the poetry, rather than having a moral imperative, has just an imperative towards life, towards experiencing and pushing one's intellect to its furthest point. He, I think, his poetry stands against um, against complacency, against ease of repurposing. He is in favour always of originality. He has a lot of poetry that condemns unoriginality, some of it very graphic and scatological. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, he says in his poetry to us, here you stand, your mind is a miraculous thing if you would unfurl it and and you know if you would deploy it in all its fullness he is asking of us to put in the enormous effort that it takes to unfurl and see and use and and just you know Bite, bite the world with all your intellect is, I think, what he wants. That, I think, is the perfect way to conclude this conversation. Um, <laughs> Catherine Rundell, thank you so much for joining us and very best of luck in the final stages of the Bailey Gifford Prize. Thank you so much. The Bailey Gifford Prize 2022 shortlist is The Legacy of Violence by Caroline Elkins, The Escape Artist by Jonathan Friedland, My Fourth Time We Drowned by Sally Hayden, The Restless Republic by Anna Key, A Fortunate Woman by Pauline Morland, and the book we've been discussing today, Super Infinite, The Transformations of John Donne by Catherine Rundell. Join us next time for another conversation with a shortlisted author for the Bailey Gifford Prize 2022. Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation.